to sign up a friend today. Thank you for supporting KPFT Houston, listener-sponsored radio for peace. Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of disbandering is over. Thank you for tuning in to Latino Politics and News. I'm Tony Diaz. We are recording remotely for broadcast on Tuesday, May 19th, 2020. It's time to offer all essential workers a path to legalization. That is a quote from an essay by Alfredo Corchado. That quote, his work, and today's episode represent our mission. We are bringing you a Latino perspective on politics and news on a national level and at a local level. At the top of today's show, we will talk to award-winning journalist and author Alfredo Corchado. He will discuss and read from his potent essay, A Former Farm Worker on American Hypocrisy. It appeared in the New York Times. We've spoken to Alfredo in the past on our sister show, Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. However, his work, especially this essay, is literature, is politics, is news. That's the fate of Latino artists and writers. We do not have the luxury of being only writers or only artists who can simply create art for art's sake. Our community's well-being is on the line, and our fate is also the fate of the entire nation. The figures we focus on do not find this to be a limitation. They are empowered by the challenges of our time and they strive to empower. That means Nuestra Palabra created the second radio show to more directly lean into the political aspect of our work while never striving too far from and always edifying our community's cultural capital. With that said, the second half of our show is all about the down ballot. We speak with Penny Shaw, a Latina in the Democrat primary for Texas House seat 148. She has a runoff July 14th. Early voting starts July 6th. The general election for that seat is in November. And as our pledge drive begins next week, we want you to keep in mind that there are no regular shows about our art, culture, and our politics on commercial television or radio. KPFT hosts a monopoly on community cultural capital. We answer to our community, please budget a donation to KPFT and make it in support of Latino politics and news or Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. Thank you in advance for your generosity. We also want to give a shout out and a virtual hug to our crew who bring you the show week in, week out, month after month, year after year. Leti Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixed the show remotely, Claudia Soler Alfonso, Jesse Aranda Comer, Laurie Flores, Stefano Cavazza, Al Castillo. I'm happy to join you every Tuesday from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. for Latino Politics and News here on 90.1 FM KPFT. 
That's followed by Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say at 6 p.m. I also get to see you on the political talk show, What's Your Point, on Fox 26 Houston, Sundays at 7 a.m. This is Tony Diaz with Latino Politics and News. For tuning in to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. We really have a special guest today who has written a really powerful opinion editorial that just ran in the New York Times. He is a friend of our cause. We've had him on our sister radio show several times. Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. He is Alfredo Corchado. He is the Mexico border correspondent for the Dallas Morning News and author of the amazing book, Midnight in Mexico, a reporter's journey through a country's descent into darkness. Born in Durango, Mexico, he was raised in California and Texas. He worked the fields of California alongside his parents, who were members of the United Farm Workers Union, led by Cesar Chavez. Corchado began his career in journalism at the El Paso Herald Post before working for the Wall Street Journal. He is a Neiman Woodrow Wilson Rockefeller, Lannan, U.S. Max, and IOP Fellow, and the winner of the Maria Morris Cabot Prize and Elijah Paris Lovejoy Award for Courage in Journalism. He's also a former director of the Borderlands Program at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. He has reported on the reach of Mexican drug cartels into the United States, the plight of Mexican and Central American immigrants in the U.S., and government corruption on both sides of the border. He was inducted into Texas Institutes of Letters in 2018. Corchado lives between El Paso and Mexico City, but calls the border home. Today, we are talking about, and he will read from, at the end of the interview, his essay that just appeared in the New York Times titled, A Former Farm Worker on American Hypocrisy, in the pandemic, illegal workers are now deemed essential by the federal government. Alfredo, welcome back to KPFT. Congratulations on all your successes. And before we start talking about this really amazing essay, tell us where you're calling from and how things are looking there on the ground. Well, Tony, first of all, great to uh, talk to you again. Always a pleasure to be on your show. I am back on the border in El Paso, right across Ciudad Juarez. And we're going through the, uh, well, some say the beginning of the worst uh, here on the border. Uh, the, the numbers keep climbing in both Juarez and both El Paso. Things at this point are, are not looking well. And obviously there's a lot of fear now that uh, Texas has opened up again. It's right around the Mother's Day weekend. So many people are fear that both sides are going to say, I want to see mama and We'll see how that goes, I guess, two three weeks from now. I should also point out that because of the Corona-19 virus, we are recording everything remotely. So the essay came out in the New York Times on May 6th. We're chatting today on Friday, May 8th, and this will broadcast on May 19th. I mention all that because by the time this airs, we're going to know whether the reopening of Texas went well or not. I'm going to pause there to let that sink in, because by the same token, this pandemic has resulted in so many, basically, hypocrisies being revealed. Your essay is a really powerful testament to that. You're going to read it at the end of the program. Tell us about the evolution of this piece. How long were you thinking about it and at what point did the first lines sink into your imagination? I've been thinking about it for a while. First of all, the essay was inspired by my second book, Homelands. And there, there's a passage in Chapter 7. It's called Fickle America. And it looks at the, at the United States and how they want it both ways. One day they love you, 
I always remember my, my father telling me the story about when he first arrived at Sabrosero in the 1950s in California. And there was this uh, sort of a festive atmosphere. You know, you're here, let's do a carne asada. He, he, he talked about going to a movie theater in, uh, in Fresno, and there were signs, Bienvenido los Braceros. And you compare that to today, living on the border. One of the first things I saw covering the pandemic was the call to social distance, the call to stay at home, sort of hunker down and not be around people, wear a face mask. But yet, just a few miles from here, there were workers still building the wall, the president's wall, the big, bold, beautiful wall that, that he's called for. And in reporting that, you kind of question this country and you question the hypocrisy. And you go back to your days as a field worker, as a farm worker in California, when when the the migra vans would show up, and it was usually during the, the latter part of the season, in August, right before when school started again. And that was always a sign that the season was coming to an end, and that it was time to haul them, haul them away, kick them back to Mexico. So I, I think that has always kind of stayed with me, you know. As we say in Mexico, uh, la doble moral de, del país, the dual morality of a country. That has always bothered me. It's always, it's always made me question the anti-immigrant rhetoric. It, 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 I guess it, it's been festering during the pandemic. You know, you, you go to a grocery store and you see these, whether it's the melons or the vegetables. And I always wonder because I was... I, I mean, I, I once did that for a living, helped my parents, you know, I, w I would help uh, in, in the summers and the springs to try to make enough money to buy the school supplies, to buy new the, the new clothing for the, for the school year. But in my mind, I always kind of wonders when I see these vegetables. And it, it makes me think, who's picking them today? These people are so essential. I mean, these workers are so essential. Some of them still my relatives. And yet, they call them illegal. That's really a powerful context. And I think it also speaks to the fact that we as Latinos, Mexicans, Chicanos, Latinx, we've always got to perform <laughs> at a higher level than everyone else. I'm going to ask you two questions. The second one is going to dive into the aesthetic work that you did in this piece, which is profound. But I want to start by saying how straightforward the piece is, too. You also link it to some of the policies that have been played with right under our noses. A lot of them run into this anti-immigrant scapegoating that turns into policy that's changed and comes back again that has real life-changing impacts for our community. How, how do you contain it? You did a really wonderful thing of linking it to your life experience, but by the same token, you have to cut a lot out. Like you mentioned, you've written entire books on this subject. You live it. How do you walk that tension between letting it become a novel-length work and then here being so concise in a column length? I think it's part of it is the is training as a journalist. I, I often tell people when sources know my history, they know my background, the first question they ask is, are you really objective? Can you really tell the story? And so I've always felt a, a need to fight back by trying harder to listen to their story, to make sure that the stories I write have two sides, that they're balanced. And sometimes it's more than two sides. You know, they could be uh, multiple sides. But you, you have to balance that. You have to try to get their voices in. You have to try to be fair as heck because you are a journalist. And I, and I love and, and, and really respect my profession. At the same time, it's, it's a family history. It's, it's what I've seen. It's what I've witnessed. Yes, you can write a book and you can pour it in the book. But I think in moments like this, you, you also have to draw on your own experience to try to get across to your fellow citizen, your, your fellow American, and say, look, what we're doing, you may not want undocumented workers, but at least understand the context, understand that perspective, understand where they fit in today's society, you know, they, they, 
you know, you can't just say, every, you know, these people are critical to the infrastructure of the country, uh, of, of the food supply. You can't just call them essential without realizing that you've also made them illegal. You've also made them part of this shadowy existence. In moments like that, I know you, you got to kind of get off the sidelines and really listen to yourself and, and, and go back to, to what you lived through and put that on paper. And it, it, it wasn't very hard to write. It wasn't, you know, it didn't take me that long to just put it down, put a little Juan Gabriel, put a little um, Los Bukis, and just take you back and, and put it in today's context. <laughs> I love it. And I can feel all those muses that work in the piece. It's published in one of the major newspapers in the country. Tell us a little bit more about what you hope this work does and how this piece fits into the bigger picture of the Latino experience. That's a great question, Tony, because I write from a personal experience, but I think I write uh, for millions. I mean, I, I think my voice is one of millions in this country. And I have the privilege to, to work as a journalist, to work as, at, at the Dallas Morning News, and to occasionally be called from major publications who want, you know, invite me to do something. So I do it knowing that there are millions of other Latinos across the country. It's kind of a way to give voice to others. I mean, I, I've also experienced a lot of the attacks against Mexican-Americans, against Hispanics. I mean, I was here on August 3rd of last year when a alleged white supremacist from North Texas comes to El Paso and shoots, you know, more than 40 people, kills 23 of them at Walmart. And so those experiences, I mean, they, again, you're a journalist, that's your job. But at the same time, you know, you, you, you get up in the morning, you look and look yourself in the mirror and you say, I was also a farm worker and I'm also Mexican American and I'm also Mexicano. And this impacts you. So sometimes just spell it out. Tell it how it is. Tell it how you feel. If this was a, a journalistic story, I mean, obviously, I would balance and try to get all sides. But this is my personal essay. And again, I think it's the essay of millions of, of, of people who work the fields over the years or people who still feel on the margins of society and still feel like they're in this shadowy world and constantly trying to prove to this country that they too belong, that their children are, are, are really part of the fabric of this country and that through them, we are replenishing America and America's future. I mean, I, I could have gone on and on in that article and, and, you know, spell out my nieces and my other family, you know, kids who are want to be doctors and are going to Allegheny College, et cetera. I mean, it's really the story of this country when you think about it. It's a story of future generations of this country. And it's, it's a story of, you know, why we were drawn to this country in the first place. Powerful. On that note, I want to thank you for calling in. We're going to close with you reading the essay for us. But I did want to first thank you so much for all the work that you do. Please keep us posted and we wish you continued success. Tony, thank you so much. Un abrazo. In the pandemic, illegal workers are now deemed essential by the federal government. By Alfredo Corchado, the Mexico border correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. El Paso. The other day, 
armed with a face mask, I was rushing through the aisles of an organic supermarket, sizing up the produce, squeezing the oranges and tomatoes, when a memory hit me. Me, age six, stooping to peek the same fruits and vegetables in California San Joaquin Valley. I spent the spring weekends and scorching summer suns of my childhood in those fields under the watchful eyes of my parents. Once I was a teenager, I worked alongside them, my brothers and cousins too, essential links in the supply chain that kept America fed, but always a step away from derision, detention, and deportation. Today, hundreds of thousands of immigrants from Mexico and Central America are doing that work. By the Department's Agriculture's own estimates, about half the country's field hands, more than a million workers, are undocumented. Growers and labor contractors estimate that the real proportion is closer to 75%. Suddenly, in the face of coronavirus pandemic, these illegal workers have been deemed essential by the federal government. Tino, an undocumented worker from Oaxaca, Mexico, is hauling asparagus in the same farm where my family once worked. He picks tomatoes in the summers and melons in the fall. He told me his employers has given him a letter tucked inside his wallet next to a picture of his family, assuring any who asks that he is a critical to the supply chain. The letter was sanctioned by the Department of Homeland Security, the same agency that has spent 17 years trying to deport him. I don't feel this letter will stop La Migra from deporting me, Dino told me, but it makes me feel I may have a chance in this country, even though Americans may change their minds tomorrow. True to form, America still wants it both ways. It wants to be fed, and it wants to demonize undocumented immigrants who make that happen. Recently, President Trump tweeted that he would temporarily suspend immigration into the United States, a threat consistent with the hit the immigrant like a piñata policy he spearheaded in his 2016 campaign. Less than 24 hours later, the president backed down in the face of business groups fearful of losing access to foreign labor, announcing that he would keep the guest worker program. In the past, the United States has rewarded immigrants, soldiers who fought our wars with a path to citizenship. Today, the fields, along with the meatpacking plants, the delivery trucks, and the grocery store shelves are our front lines and border security cannot be disconnected from food security. It's time to offer all essential workers a path to legalization. It might seem hard to imagine this happening during the Build the Wall presidency, when Congress can barely agree on emergency stimulus measures. Many Republicans no longer support even DACA, the program that protected dreamers who grew up here and that could be revoked by the Supreme Court this week. But the pandemic scrambles are normal politics. We have started talking about essential workers as a category of superheroes, said Andrew Silly, the president of the Nonpartisan Migration Policy Institute and author of Vanishing Frontiers. If the pandemic continues for a year or two, he said, we should think in a bold way about how do we deal with essential workers who have put their lives on the line for all of us, but who don't have legal documents. Maybe, he said, they should be in the pipeline for fast-track regularization, like those with DACA are for now. Of course, America has always been a fickle country. I learned that lesson is a crop-picking boy when Mayana Esperanza, who ran the team of farmhands that included my mom, brothers, and my cousins, would yell, Aganciarco, duck. 
The workers without documents would stop hoeing and scramble, run, if not for their lives, then almost certainly for their livelihoods. We watched as the vans of the Border Patrol came to a screeching hoss, thus settling. The unlucky workers would make a beeline for the nearest ditch or canal. Some would even drop to the ground, hoping for refuge amid the rows of sugar beets, tomatoes, and cotton. Sometimes the agents would give chase. We would always root for the prey. On more than one occasion, agents took my mom and my Aunt Teresa, locking them up in the cages in the back of the van because they didn't have their green cards on them. We would race back home and fetch the cards and make a mad dash to the immigration offices in Fresno, some 60 miles away from our farm camp in Oroloma, praying we would make it there before they could be deported. We were desperate to prove they had every right to be out in those desolate fields if they were taking a dream job away from somebody else. One time, Aunt Teresa looked genuinely disappointed at the sight of our smiling faces. She was ticked off she had not been deported. I miss Mexico, she said. Sometimes the night after such raids, a puzzling thing would take place. A labor contractor or farmer would drive up as we gather for dinner a beef, green chili, and potato caldillo washed down with tortillas. He would compliment us for the hard work we had put in that hard day. And then he would ask, did we know anyone else who might want to come and work alongside of us? He meant more Mexicans. The instructions were simple. Get the word out. Spread the farmer's plea back in our hometowns in Mexico because plenty of rain had fallen that winter. And now it was summer and everything around us was ripe, aching for that human touch. The season looked promising, plenty of crops to pick. Today, not much has changed. The vulnerable, dreamers working in healthcare, hotel maids, dairy and poultry plant workers, waiters, cooks, and busboys in the $900 billion restaurant industry still work to feed their families while feeling disposable, deportable by an ungrateful nation. Dino, the farm worker in the San Joaquin Valley, is worried about the coronavirus. He wonders whether it's best after 17 years of hiding from immigration authorities to return to Oaxaca, where, he says, I'd rather die. But Dino's dreams outweighed his fears. He wants the best for his family including a son born in the United States, who's looking at colleges in California. So he continues in his $13.50 an hour job. He works from, among others, Joe L. Del Bosque of Del Bosque Farms, one of the largest melon, organic melon growers in the country. Mr. Del Bosque employs about 300 people on hundreds of acres and its fruits and vegetables are sold in just about every organic supermarket across the country, including the place where I now shop in El Paso. Sadly, it's taking a pandemic for Americans to realize that the food in their grocery stores, on their tables, is courtesy of mostly Mexican workers, the majority of them without documents, Mr. Del Bosque told me. They're the most vulnerable of workers, they're not hiding behind the pandemic waiting for a stimulus check. Along with other farmers, he has been pleading with Congress for the past few years to legalize farm workers. If not as part of some comprehensive immigration reform, then as a bill focused on farm workers, because you need these workers today, tomorrow, and for a long time, he told me. With or without COVID, he added, we need to constantly replenish our workforce to ensure food supplies. Some Democratic lawmakers, including Representative Veronica Escobar of El Paso, are pushing to include legalization 
in any updated coronavirus package. The hypocrisy within America is that we want the fruits of their undocumented labor, but we want to give them nothing in return, she told me. Even with unemployment projected to be 15% or higher, Mr. Del Bosque told me he doubts he'll ever see a line of job-seeking Americans flocking to his fields. The rare few who show up at 5.30 a.m. don't come back. He said some give up the back-breaking work before their first lunch break. Del Bosque fears looming labor shortages. That's not because of rage by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement resuming or a wall keeping workers out. He worries about a potential coronavirus outbreaks. Yes, of course he does. But his most immediate concern is farm workers are aging. Their average age is 40. My old school, Oroloma Elementary School, which was once filled with Mexican children, closed down in 2010. The fields are simply running out of Mexicans as fewer men and women migrate every year, either because they're finding better jobs in Mexico or because of demographics. The Mexican birth rate is down from 7.3 children per woman in the 1960s to 2.1 in 2018. Those who do come want higher paying jobs in other industries. The best way to guarantee food security in the future is to legalize the current workers in order to keep them here and to offer a pathway to legalization as the incentive for new agriculture workers to come. These people will be drawn not just from Mexico, but increasingly from Central and South America. Del Bosque Farms has been dependent on Mexican workers since Mr. Del Bosque's parents, who are also immigrants from Mexico, started hiring them in the 1950s under the Bracero program, which began during World War II. The program issued some 5 million contracts to Mexicans, inviting them to come to the United States as guest workers to help fill labor shortages so Americans could fight overseas. Hundreds of workers who've toiled at Del Bosque Farms over the years have become legal residents, many more citizens, including my father, Juan Pablo. For many years, my father spent the springs and summers working in the United States, but every November, he would hightail it back to his village in Mexico, San Luis de Cordero, Durango, where he played in a band called the Birds, Los Pajaritos, with his five brothers. He didn't trust his American bosses to raise his pay and always worry about the possibility of suddenly being deported so he wouldn't commit to them. The Texans, especially, he thought, were prejudiced against Mexicans. The boys from Mexico worked so hard. Texas Rangers argue during one of America's cyclical anti-immigrant periods that the hiring of Mexicans should not be considered a felony. Thus, the Texas Proviso was adopted in 1952, stating that employing unauthorized workers would not constitute harboring or concealing them. This helps explain why Americans call immigrants illegal, but not the businesses that hire them. When the Bracero program ended in 1964, amid accusations of mistreatment against Mexicans, my father thought he had enough of plowing rows on a tractor and digging ditches. He dreamed of running a grocery store in Mexico raising his kids out where mountains embraced us. But he was such a hard worker that his boss couldn't fathom the idea of losing him. So he helped my father get a green card for every member of his family, including me. Later, he began working for the Del Bosques. Without legalization, he would have left and probably never come back. As a six-year-old, 
I cried under the California stars, homesick for Mexico, for my friends, for my cousins. Then one night, my mother Adlinda tucked me into bed, and as she caressed my face, shh, she whispered, they're all here now, and she was right. Today, my siblings include a lawyer, an accountant, a truck driver, a delivery manager, a security guard, an educational fundraiser, and a prosthetic specialist. Cousins went off to fight wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, or to help run medical centers and corporations, including Walmart in Arkansas. Others still grind away in the fields of California and meatpacking plants of Colorado, or they work in nursing homes or clean the houses of the rich. Many of us make an annual pilgrimage to our home village in San Luis de Cordero, surrounded by Mexican desert, but we are firmly planted here. Without being thanked for it, we are replenishing America. is happy to welcome Penny Shaw. She is a Democrat candidate for Texas House of Representative District 148. She is in a runoff against Diana Eastman, scheduled for July 14th, with early voting starting July 6th. Diana Eastman already appeared on the show. The winner will face Republican candidate Luis LaRota November 3rd. The seat is held by incumbent Anna Eastman, who won a special election when the former longtime incumbent Jessica Farrar retired. Penny Shaw is a 20-year civil and human rights lawyer who has worked with congressional lawmakers to pass human rights laws, including the International Violence Against Women's Act, Children's Right to Early Childhood Education, and Women's Right to Maternal Health Care. As a longtime litigation attorney, Penny has worked to represent working families and people's rights in the legal system. She's been recognized for her extensive pro bono legal work in underrepresented communities. Welcome to our Airways, Penny. First, tell us, how are you getting through the lockdown right now? Do you miss block walking? Yes, actually, after the primary and getting through that election, we were very much looking forward to connecting with voters uh, by canvassing and block walking and directly uh, one-on-one contact with voters um, but of course, the COVID-19 arose in mid-March, and that has definitely caused everyone to pause and try to create new plans for mostly remote campaigning. We have been able to utilize our volunteers and resources. We'll actually ask our volunteers if they wanted to do care checks on the community during, you know, we started in pretty much mid-March when all of this started getting in the news about COVID-19. So we've been able to do care calls, which people have really appreciated and giving them resources, particularly our senior citizens. And we've also been engaging for about the past month and a half in uh, food distribution, grocery distributions to about 500 families a week. And that's how we've decided to re-engage and repurpose our campaign resources. Now we're sort of turning a corner here and gearing back up for voter contact about the election now that we know the new election date of July 14th and that voters have an option to apply to vote by mail, by asking for a mail-in ballot uh, before July 3rd. So we're, we're making sure that we communicate that to voters so that they're, uh, they can exercise their right to vote. Elections matter. If we could go back in time, would you have voted for SB4, Texas's version of a show-me-your-papers law? Why or why not? What are the effects of this law? Well, I would not have supported SB4. I was reading through that. We had that come through when I was a deputy chief in Harris County, 
And uh, I went back to SV4 to understand the exact language in it. Uh, one of the reasons was to object to it and object to the practices. And what I was surprised to learn was the language of SB4 allows um, law enforcement to go on to campuses and actually just randomly screen and ask students uh, about their citizenship. And I, I found that really invasive and obviously we can imagine the harmful effects of that. So. No, I'd have to say that, in fact, we I, I'd help prepare a proclamation, a resolution against it, and that was the purpose of the research. Regarding DACA, as you know, Secretary of Education DeVos, who was appointed by Donald Trump, removed DACA recipients from COVID-19 education relief funds. What are your thoughts on that? I would absolutely not support that. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the opponent for Texas State Representative in the primary runoff right now, Eastman, has been, to my understanding, supported by the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, the Trump appointee, um, which concerns me because uh, that tells me that their views um, are aligned. And she's not only has she removed the DACA recipients, as you mentioned, from the education relief under COVID-19, but she's also uh, proposed ending the uh, student loan relief program, the forgiveness program. And also, I, from my understanding, she supports the proposal to further cut the educational funds budget uh, by millions and millions of dollars. That's currently of being considered, Trump proposed it, and from what I understand, she is supportive of it. So, no, of course not. I don't think that these kinds of targeted actions against DACA recipients, I wouldn't support them. I, I'm not in agreement with them, and no, I would not support them. I think that part of my eagerness to be a state representative and serve the community is to stand up to exactly these kinds of acts, actions that are a direct attack on immigrants and DACA recipients. Uh, we need that kind of bold representation, and we also need a network of elected officials. Uh, we have 150 state representatives, and you know, the more we have that will stand up boldly to these kind of governmental actions targeting DACA recipients and Im immigrants, the better chance we have that, that, that they'll stop happening and that they won't gain any traction. And as far as helping education, of course, I'm for public education, I'm for DACA recipients having in-state cost for college, college education and not having them pay more than other students pay. That's also been proposed. But I'm for robustly funding public education. We need our community schools in neighborhoods, neighborhood community schools. Of course, the issue of immigration is important to Latinos. Our show wants Latinos to be taken into account for every issue on every platform. One of our most pressing issues is education. In 2012, Arizona legislators banned Mexican-American studies. As a Texas legislator, would you support Mexican-American studies would you spread the word about the benefits of and the existence of Mexican-American studies and Afro-American studies in schools through your platforms? I agree. The, the Latino voice is very important. I'm very happy to know that the community is mobilizing. They're becoming very concerned about politics and engaged in voting. There's an uptick. And, of course, in our campaigning, we certainly want to engage with uh, that population, our population in this district, District 148. This is uh, at least 64% Hispanic, so it's a majority Hispanic. Um, and we want those voters to get out and vote because their voice absolutely does matter and especially their collective voice. So a lot of our outreach is geared towards reaching those voters and making sure that they're aware of the election and what's at stake. 
as far as Arizona legislators banning Mexican-American studies, um, I would absolutely support Mexican-American studies. Um, I think it's a critical part of our history. It's a real part of our history. The more that we have published mainstream information about Mexican-American history, I think the prouder Hispanics can be, Mexicans can be, and Hispanics in general can be of their, of their history, their past, their accomplishments, their triumphs. I think it's important to feel included, and, and it, it just raises the level of importance just by the mere fact that it's included in studies. Yes, yes, I, I would use my platform to promote minority studies, absolutely. And I, I believe that many educators are very much on board with that as well. Um, I think, again, it's a matter of having elected officials who take those matters seriously and they consider them important enough to advocate for them. So, yes, as far as Mexican-American studies, African-American studies, and other minority studies, I think it's very important to have an accurate depiction of history in, in our educational system. During this COVID-19 epidemic, schools have been rushed online. Students with resources, access to computers, internet access, a quiet place to study will adapt. Many won't. How do you propose we close the technology gap and assist the students who will fall between the cracks during this epidemic? Yes, one of the remedies that HISD and other school districts have taken is to move studies online as much and as quickly as possible to bridge that gap so that students don't have a lapse in their studies. It's obvious that that, that makes it more apparent that there's um, there are communities who either don't have access to internet, who don't have the proper equipment, who don't have the, a conducive environment or a, a supportive environment uh, in order to focus on their studies. Uh, for a lot of students, school was a, a, a safe haven. It was a place where um, they could be with their friends and they could be in a different environment where they had support from their teachers and just the whole uh, education community there to help them move along in their, in their studies. We know that that's an issue right now, um, and a lot of entities and organizations are trying to fill that gap. I think it's important. That's a, that's a huge issue. There are so many students just in HISD, and I think that it's worthy of looking at for special allocation of funds. Even, you know, this is considered a disaster. It's been declared one, and there are uh, rainy day or disaster funds there, whether it's in Harris County or city of Houston, or if it's at the state level, I think to have that that's something that's important enough that some of those funds should be delegated uh, to that purpose, to fill that gap, to make sure, to making sure that there is an equal playing field that all children from any walk of life has access to everything they need to continue studying Again, that's something that legislators need to advocate for. They need to talk to the, present this to the proper committees and to, even in, even in the legislation that's already passed, the stimulus bills, those are opportunities to bring up these kind of issues to make sure that our delegation here and our delegation in the, at the federal level will take those matters into consideration to make sure, again, that the resources and funds are put behind this to get children the proper technology, the equipment, the resources, even the teachers' proper resources so they can interface with students. There are well-established um, homeschooling systems, even in public school, uh, even in different public, public schools. Uh, and we can look to those for our own, setting up our own education infrastructure, uh, be it online, remote. We can look to those. They, I, I know of uh, school districts that have had a, a remote online learning component, even at the grade school, middle school level, 
and they're well-developed and they are working very smoothly. So I think that that's a good reference point that we can use to help our own students here to make sure that they're getting the most during these uncertain times. And parents, we have to mention the parents because they struggle with this. They still have to go to work. Um, the ones that are fortunate enough to, to be able to go to work and they have small children in some cases. And so having the system would also help parents not having to also carry that burden when, when really in reality, it's not practical. They can't do it. They can't have a full-time job and then also be the educator of their children. That's a very big ask of a parent who's working full-time and it maybe even some working two, two jobs. In closing, will you come back and participate in a town hall or maybe a debate? And what would you like our listeners to know about your campaign? Yes, I think it's important to to hold town halls uh, and debates. That way, the community, the public, the voters get to get to see the candidates juxtapose. They get to hear their position on issues. They get a better sense of who that candidate is. Um, besides just reading, you know, a one-dimensional thing online about them, they can actually get to inter, you know, interact with them, ask them questions, and have a better sense of who they're voting for. I think it's important for voters to know, to have that exposure to candidates, because as we know, oftentimes it's not the better candidate that, that wins or the one that has the community's best interest at heart. It's often the one that just has more access to reach voters and um, get them more material and have better exposure. And that doesn't always turn out to be the, the best elected official that acts in the best interest of the community. So I, I do agree with any kind of uh, town hall or debate is, is a good thing. Uh, as far as what I would want people to know about the campaign, Jessica Farrar was a staunch community representative for 25 years, and she was beloved in the community. Jessica has endorsed the campaign, and I think my campaign has endorsed me for this position. And I think that speaks volumes because that's a representative who knows the community, knows the needs, but that also is a lawyer and knows the Texas legislature and what it's going to take for a representative to really do the work, the hard work, and it's going to be a voice for all the different communities that are represented in this district. Um, this is a melting pot. We've got people from every walk of life in this district, just like most of Harris County. So it's important that the elected official can relate to all of these people and care about everyone's needs and find solutions, uh, even though sometimes, oftentimes, legislators have to face difficult, um, even contradicting interest. But these things can be resolved uh, if we approach them intelligently, compassionately, um, and thoughtfully. Uh, I've also been endorsed by Congresswoman uh, Sylvia Garcia, uh, former Congressman Jean Green, Representatives Armando Wally and Anna Hernandez, and many others. Uh, all of the endorsements are on VoteForPenny.com uh, under the Endorsements tab. And also there's a lot of other information about my platform. I, I would also like um, the public to know that this district, District 148, was carved out many years ago, over 25 years ago, as a Hispanic Opportunity District seat. Uh, and what a Hispanic Opportunity District seat means is that there was and continues to be a, a greater a degree of Hispanics in this district, and therefore they deserve to have a voice at the Texas legislature. Um, it ensures that the Latino community has a voice uh, with their specific needs uh, being heard at the Texas legislature. Also, um, it preserves the diversity of the Texas legislature. We are in the minority as far as representation uh, with our Texas lawmakers, so I think it's really important to preserve uh, that diversity in this seat. The seat has always been held by a Latino for the last over 25 years, uh, and I think that's important. I really do, especially in the tone of today's political environment. I think it's really important to promote and keep diversity. 
So I would just say please uh, find out a little bit about your candidates as much as you can. There's lots of information online. Um, I, I'm a 20-year lawyer that has dedicated most of my practice to doing civil rights work and human rights work, including going to D.C. for many years to pass human rights laws and also to start up uh, programs in the community for underrepresented uh, people who didn't have access to the court system through free legal representation. Uh, those are, those are, that's what my background is comprised of and working locally at the county um, to make sure and actually to increase government transparency by including people in the process, whatever that might have been, whether it was a debate about, uh, you know, an environmental issue, uh, converting a golf course into, you know, some other use that affected the public, making sure the public had a say in that. Um, those are really important to include the public. A representative is meant to hear the public voice, understand their concerns, and include them in the process. So that I don't want to take up too, too much of your time, but that's a little bit about my background. I'm a mom, homegrown Houstonian. Um, my mother is Latina from the Valley, and she was a working-class mom here in Houston. My dad was in the Air Force, and he was also... Uh, worked all his life in Houston here to raise our large family. So I've learned my family and work ethic values from my parents, and I think it's very important for the representative uh, to be a voice for the working families who comprise and make up most of Harris County. So my campaign website, again, is voteforpenny.com, and I thank you. We want to thank our crew that's putting the show together, Letty Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixed this show remotely. Claudia Soler Alfonso. Jesse Aranda Comer. Lori Flores. Stefano Cabeza. And Al Castillo. Thanks for tuning in. This is Tony Diaz with Latino Politics and News. Are you dumb? on the mountain. Go talk it to the seashore. Whisper it in the breeze. Say it wherever you please. But it's a secret that needs to get out. So tell a friend that you heard it on KPFT. It's a secret that should be shouted out. From the highest overpass to the bends in the bayou, you heard it on KPFT. If it's worth hearing, if it's worth discussing, KPFT gets the word out. So tell a friend to turn on, tune in, and listen to radio for your mind. Call 713-526-5738 to sign up a friend today. Thank you for supporting KPFT Houston, listener-sponsored radio for peace.
By joining KPFT's Sustainer Program this hour, you can support your local non-commercial station and help KPFT reduce its pledge drives. Rather than giving a yearly gift, Sustainers give a monthly donation that continues as long as you want. Giving 5, 20, 100, or more monthly helps change the way KPFT works. Sustainers help us meet our operating expenses without days and days of on-air fundraising. That means less pledge drive, more efficiency, and 